You cannot create a successful product without validation. This is something I've struggled with over time because validation is really painful. You're showing your product to people for the first time, most likely they're not gonna have the response that you hope. But by getting that response, you're actually gonna be able to create something that people want and care about. So today I'm gonna teach you how to validate different aspects of your product strategy. Are you building something that people care about? Are you building something that people will pay for? Are you building something that can grow sustainably? Most people, the way they validate their ideas is to build an MVP, which is also called a product test. Now, creating an MVP is literally the slowest and most expensive way to validate your idea. And <clears throat> I've fallen into this too, uh, where you know you have a good idea, you have your initial insight, and you you do some validation, but it's not very systematic. You know, like in our last episode on product market fit, what you do is you come up with a set of hypotheses to cover various aspects of your business from the target audience to the user problem, to the value prop, to the business model, to the growth strategy. And you figure out what are the riskiest hypotheses off the bat. Um, and then what you do is in a targeted way, you, you systematically validate the riskiest pillars of your product strategy and the riskiest hypotheses within those pillars. What I've done in the past is like do a series of interviews, get a sense of whether users are resonating with the idea kind of broadly, and then jump in building an MVP. And even that's more than most, like the lean startup methodology says, build the MVP and then iterate, um, which again is an extremely costly and slow way to do things. And if you're a venture funded startup, you might run out, run out of money and time if you need to pivot significantly. And if you're not a venture funded startup, I feel that the lack of conviction in your idea and the, the lack of progress can be extremely dispiriting for you and for the people you're working with. So you're grinding away on a nights and weekends project with inadequate validation. And you're like, you know, is there even a light at the end of the tunnel? Like, what's the point of this? Whereas if you do like appropriate validation, you can work towards that pro project with the knowledge that, okay, here are the risks. Okay. These are known risks that are circumscribed. Here's how we validated them. And here's how we've gone through a series of validation techniques from fast and broad all the way to expensive and targeted to de-risk this as much as possible so we can have conviction in what we're building. And now at the end of this process, like we're building the MVP to finish our validation process. So it gives you a sense of the kind of things we're going to be talking about today. Um, I think if you're someone who's interested in building things, building products, building companies, this is a really crucial episode um, for you. And I know it's a, it's a crucial one for me because I want to dig into this more and more, uh, both at my day job where I work at a, uh, I'm a early, early employee of a startup that is working on a software defined electronics tool to change the way people design circuit boards. Um, as well as for this podcast itself, like we're trying to validate this podcast, like the value prop of it, the problem statement we're trying to address, the target audience, all those things too. 
So for the stuff that I'm working on, this is this is crucial, and for future projects I'm going to work on, and I hypothesize that this will be useful for you guys too, if you have any interest in creating things of of any significance. So today we're going to draw from Reforge's program on finding product market fit. Reforge is like a tech mini MBA of sorts, uh, run by entrepreneurs and unicorn startup execs, and you know, traditional MBAs definitely have their, their value. Um, I would say some programs especially, like, you know, I think UChicago's program with its strong economic and statistical emphasis definitely leaves you with some, some real skills and, and knowledge. Uh, but in an MBA program, you also might spend a lot of time, you know, pontificating on how to get um, new Coke to be adopted in, like, Azerbaijan. You know, whereas in Reforge, we're talking about, okay, in the modern tech economy, how do you acquire users? How do you grow your product? How do you build a great product? How do you know what to build? And in this case, you know, how do you find product market fit? Which is for, for I assume most of you kind of have a sense for what product market fit is, but for those of you who might not, it's the point at which your problem shifts from not having enough users to having so many users it's hard to keep up and and function as a company like products are flying off the shelf faster than you can supply them um so yeah so so this episode is going to be grounded in that reforge program uh that i'm currently working through as well as various books on user research such as thinking like a ux researcher um the mom test and various others and i am excited to share with you as well experiences i've had being in on the ground floor at several startups from fintech startups um to my current startup which is more like a deep tech startup and you know it's been it's been a wild ride and we've learned quite a lot about these topics along the way as well so we're going to talk about three major aspects of product validation the first is we're going to talk about broad validation techniques. They're cheap, they're fast, they're discovery-oriented. Then we're going to talk about how to run effective user interviews, which is a skill that's going to be useful for you and pay dividends throughout your tech career. But especially when you're trying to validate ideas like this. And we're also then going to talk about targeted validation techniques. What options do you have? When should you use them? How do you weigh them? And I think what you'll come away with here is that there is a systematic way to approach this that optimizes your chances for success. That's one. Uh, the second thing is it is possible to get quality information to help guide your what to build decisions, even if you're a small startup with almost no resources, or if you're doing a nights and weekends project where you don't even have yourself as a full resource, you know, because you have to work and do all these other things. Um, so let's dive right into broad validation techniques. So broad validation techniques include market research, expert advice, and user interviews. And the point of them is to point you in the right direction to help you identify the riskiest dimensions of your product strategy 
and then guide more expensive, more labor-intensive uh, targeted validation techniques. The king of which is building your MV- MBA. Or, uh, sorry, the dog is like complaining in the other room. Uh, the the king of which is developing your MVP. <clears throat> so, just to start things off, like, let's say you have a tech CEO and a Hollywood exec get together and raise $1.8 billion in funding. Let's say you put a billion dollars into developing the first iteration of your product and at launch, it's a flop. You get 500K subscribers versus the 7 million you hoped and your product shuts down in six months. Why? Like, how could that happen? Well, that really did happen. I mean, that was a business called Quibi started by Meg Whitman, who was the CEO of HP and Jeffrey Katzenberg. And it happened because they didn't have a value prop that resonated. They didn't find meaningful differentiation. They were trying to do like premium short form video content, like a TikTok and Netflix kind of combined. But had they done some more meaningful validation, they wouldn't have just run into the jaws of death and like wasted literally like $2 billion. Um, If they'd just taken that money and put it in an index fund, that might've been much more lucrative for them, honestly. So when we talk about market research, what are we talking about here? We are talking about looking at different aspects of your product strategy and finding analogs and antilogs. So for example, for this podcast, you might say like, what are some analogs? Well, uh, Ben Thompson at Stratechery is providing thought leadership um, on tech strategy and he's doing well, you know, people are resonating with his content. So there are people providing, you know, deep value added content to this segment successfully, and they're able to charge a subscription fee for it, right? So that's an analog for the business model. It's an analog for the target audience. It's, you know, an imperfect analog for the value prop. Um, and then you go through and you kind of do that for, for each aspect of your business. So an example would be um, you take like Patreon, right? So Patreon is trying to help incorporate like this new feature where you uh, you sell merch to your patrons. And Teespring, Shopify, Cotton Bureau, these are all analogs in the problem to solve dimension. They're addressing the same issue but they are antilogs in the business model dimension because their business model is totally different uh, from Patreon's and they also um, just don't really align with the overall mission uh, of Patreon. So when you're sourcing these like analogs and antilogs for market research, look at direct competitors, look at indirect competitors and look at adjacent markets too. So Let's say you're creating a new game console. Your direct competitors are like PlayStation, Xbox, Nintendo. Your indirect competitors that are competing for entertaining people 
solving the problem of boredom might be Netflix, Hulu, might be, you know, even board games, things like that. Um, and then you can also look at adjacent markets for inspiration across all these dimensions, which, you know, you might say like an adjacent market to game consoles is like TVs, right? Or like other gadgets, for example. So when it comes to analogs and antilogs, it's about quality and not quantity. And you, you, won't, you can stop market research once you've found highly successful analogs and antilogs and you have a strong degree of conviction that they give you some insight into the different aspects of your product strategy. So when you are talking to experts outside your business, it helps you just like pressure test your assumptions and see what the risks are. Now, with, with all this stuff, like you're not trying to copy these competitors. You're not trying to like listen to an expert and like, you know, take their input uncritically. What you're trying to do is like get outside information and get outside of your idealized filter bubble that you live within, you know? Um, you have this like romanticized notion of your idea and how it's going to work. And it's, it's, it's basically about getting back down to earth and getting some realistic input uh, that puts your idea in context. And when you're talking to these experts, first of all, how do you find these experts, right? So you have a list of analogs and antilogs. Contact people who work at those places. You know, they can be your, your experts, right? You're trying to create a new game console. Contact the, um, and you think the business model is going to be the biggest issue. Um, contact the, the growth person at PlayStation that works on monetization. You know? Um, tap into your network. See, see if you have anyone in your network that is in this domain that can give you some insight. And if you don't have anyone in your domain that can give you insight on this, in your network, um, then the question is, is this the right idea for you to be working on? Because if you're working on an idea where you don't know any of the users of this idea or any, you know, meaningful um, authority figures in this niche, maybe you need to find an idea that's a little closer to home. Um, and you don't need to know them like directly. It can be like, you know, a connection off a connection. It doesn't need to be the perfect person. It just needs to be someone who knows more than you and can give you some directional insight. And when you're talking to them, ask, you know, what do you think is the biggest risk in whatever dimension of the product strategy um, you're talking about, you know? And you can use them to help you find better analogs too. Like, can you think of some products that found success in this dimension? So as you're, as you're doing this, you go through, you ingest all this info and label each aspect of your product strategy as low conviction or high conviction. And think about how it's gonna affect like other dimensions too. Like for example, let's say you are Quibi and your your um, value prop is like this premium uh, short form video content, right? To create premium short form video content takes a lot of money. And let's say you find that the willingness to pay is just far too low to sustain that. Okay, now your business model has to change, and so does your value prop because they work in concert. Um, and 
once you take in this information, update your like product market fit narrative, which we talked about in the last episode is just like this collection of hypotheses around like how is each aspect of this idea going to work. And when you're updating it, there's different levels of update. There's like refinement, which is just little tweaks to increase clarity and depth. There's a pivot, which is like a moderate update to one or more dimension of your strategy. And there's a reset, which is like a complete overhaul of the strategy. And resets are painful, but they're least painful when you do them early. And, you know, it's like you got to take take the medicine, you know, like you're going to find out one way or another. Better to find out early than to find out once you've already invested a lot. So user interviews are the third broad validation technique you can use to get some insight before you start really like committing dollars and committing significant amounts of uh, labor towards validation. And you, what you're trying to do with interviews is you're trying to like basically get some color and get some insight on what is top of mind, what are the problems your users are facing, and are they resonating with different aspects of your of your product strategy? So an example of a company that really heavily leveraged user interviews is Iteratively, which was a an analytics tool. Their the founders like their previous company failed because there just was no burning desire for their product. So at Iteratively, their next company, they took six months to conduct 260 interviews at over 100 companies. What this did for them is they were able to refine their growth strategy based on where they found out participants spent time online, and they had runway left to further test the problem. They also earned credibility with potential customers through these conversations, and they only began building the product once the customers committed to purchasing it through letters of intent. So what did they get out of this? Stronger conviction, which helps them have the staying power to actually build this thing. Uh, a longer runway to iterate, because interviews are relatively cost-effective. Like I did a user interview this week and like it, um, it would have been free, honestly, but I decided to buy a Starbucks gift card as like a token of my appreciation, which is something I do recommend because people do really appreciate that. Um, even if they can obviously afford Starbucks on their own. And um, another little tip with user interviews is like, they don't have to be super formal. If you just keep your your top three user research questions in mind, you can kind of casually ask them in regular conversations with your target users, like over coffee or having a drink or just like, you know, a hallway chat um, or wherever it may be. So the point is like, it, it doesn't have to be this big formal thing. Um, and by having like a more flexible definition of what user research is, you're able to like get more of it in there and not waste opportunities. Cause you're like, oh, you know, let me schedule a meeting with you. You know, like you're at an event, you see someone in your target audience, you're like, oh, do you want to join me for user research like next week for an hour? When in reality, like you could talk to them right now and just casually ask them the three top three user research questions that are like, the most pressing for you, um, which ideally are catered to validating your riskiest dimensions of your product strategy. So 
important thing to keep in mind is don't treat the interview as a sales pitch. It's an information gathering exercise. Um, and if you treat it like a sales pitch, you're not going to get accurate information because you're going to anchor the user. When you're, when you're preparing for an interview, source and screen your audience intentionally based on your target audience hypothesis. Ask screener questions. Make sure you're seeking out people who uh, actually fit the bill. And remember that a LinkedIn profile does not always convey everything you need to know about someone to figure out whether, whether they are that good fit. So coming up with some pre-screening questions can can be helpful. If you like cold email someone on LinkedIn, you can shoot them the pre-screen if they agree to meet with you. Uh, and it also front loads some of the interview questions, which gives you information and like leaves more time during the interview for other questions. Last episode on product market fit, we also talked about customer segmentation and like figuring out who you want to cater your product towards. And as part of that conversation, we talked about listing a host of segments and then splitting them into segments you're going to target now and segments you could target in the future. Don't only interview people in your current segment because you, you want to understand the broader potential of your product. And it'll also help you like understand whether or not the segment you're catering to is the right one. Because there might be an adjacent segment that is like much more um, interested in what you're selling. But without doing those broader interviews, you, you may not you might may not realize that. And then you might have to do a late stage pivot to an adjacent group of users, which is like a really expensive way to go. So as far as numbers, I'm just going to give you a, a guideline here from Reforce that I really appreciated because it's it's achievable but challenging. Okay, so three to five participants per segment, as many as ten segments. So you're you're talking about something like thirty to fifty participants, and you're going to have to source like a lot more than that to get the interviews you need. So what I would personally recommend to you as a uh, nights and weekends person is two things. One is get LinkedIn premium and use all 15 of your in-mails each month to source participants. Um, and if you have multiple people working on your project, both of you guys should do that because you, you're probably going to need both. I think you get 15 in-mails per month default and that let's say you get 30 in-mails out between you and your co-founder um and then like let's say th you get three user conversations out of that you know um what you can do as kind of an accelerant there is tap into your network and leverage people in your network and after each conversation ask people who else do you think i should talk to and start kind of a cascading series of leads there. And I think like offering people the Starbucks gift cards and just like being friendly and non-salesy really helps with that. Um, so between all these things, like let's say you get three conversations out of the in-mails, um, you know, you get another three conversations out of referrals there from your network, you get three. And then from, from, from the conversations from your network, you get like another three referrals. 
like it starts to build up and in, in a couple of months you could really get going and have a bunch of conversations the other thing is you can go to events offline and source users that way to talk to and the final way that you could look into this is just pay a little bit and get some facebook ads out and through the facebook ads you can offer like starbucks gift cards and be like hey you know 25 dollars gift card for user research um, and that can help you source additional um, participants so this as well is like a really painful bottleneck i've had in previous pro uh, products i've worked on like at my last uh at one of my last companies which was a fintech company the target audience was like ceos of uh medium-sized businesses or sorry cfos of medium-sized businesses and these are busy folks there aren't that many of them if, if, you, if you have a company with you know 200 people there's one cfo right um so like it was it was pretty challenging to get enough of them to talk to but one thing you can consider here is like if you're in that situation find analogous users right so there may be one cfo but there might be 20 finance directors and most cfos have previously been finance directors so in some aspects talking to the finance directors gives you some insight into how people think through financial problems, how they weigh and consider their financial tool chain and, you know, what tools have worked for them, what tools haven't worked for them. Um, another thing you can do is just talk to like C-suite executives. So there's three to four times as many C-suite executives as there are CFOs. Another thing you can do is talk to people at bigger or smaller companies. Um, again, none of it is perfect, but it's all just like angles you can take to expand your possible user base. And you can also like use these like analogous experts um, in your expert interviews, right? Where it doesn't have to be the perfect expert. You can find someone who has some adjacent experience. So you're trying to release a new console and you don't know anyone who's like an expert on the console market, but you know someone who has produced like multiple like AAA rated games. That person's insight is still going to be useful. Um, it's not going to be perfectly aligned, but it's, it's still going to be useful. Another thing that I really um, liked that Reforge suggested here is like, Last time we talked about brainstorming short-term and long-term traction channels. In the short term, you need to basically do whatever you can to get users. Um, and these channels are just going to be like too cost-intensive to be sustainable, but they'll get you started. And long-term channels can take a long time to establish, can take a couple of years for SEO, social media, etc. But by using your traction channels that you've hypothesized to try to source user interviews, you're validating the channels themselves and especially the short-term channels. So, you know, that's like kind of a double whammy, you know, is the same way that you recruit your early users for user interviews, that's the way you might get your first 
customers. Um, so I really like that piece of advice because that's another huge question is like, how do you gain traction and like get your first users, which we will be talking about in the fourth episode in this series. So how do you ask someone, you know, in a, in a, in your network or even outside your network to do a user interview with you? How do you get them to give up some of their precious time and like help you out? What you want to do is you want to be concise. You want to lead with the problem. By doing that, what you do is you validate the urgency of the problem too. Like if you, if you've really honed into something useful, your hit rate's going to go up. And then you just emphasize conversation and state that it's not a sales pitch. So I'm just going to read you um, this outreach message that Sachin Reiki uh, used when he was at LinkedIn Sales Navigator or creating LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Um, and here's how it goes. So hi, uh, Michael, superfan Michael. We're contemplating a new product at LinkedIn dedicated to helping sales professionals improve sales prospecting. As a sales professional, would you be willing to share your experience with us? We're not trying to sell you a new product, just conducting user interviews so we can build the best possible product for professionals like you. And if you want to literally just lift that and use that, do it and then like modify it based on how things go, you know? So screening participants. So figure out how many people you need to talk to and what type. Go out and find possible participants. Start reaching out and be ready for a lot of silence. And then screen the ones who come out of that and go from there. When you're conducting these like product market fit discovery interviews, what you want to do is you want to try to validate as many dimensions of your product strategy as possible, but prioritize the riskiest ones. And you don't want to just like jump right into like the most intensive questions. Like you want to try to build rapport. And I have to say, like I'm good at building rapport in regular conversations. I'm not amazing at building rapport in user interviews. Like sometimes I really like have a hard time with being like transitioning uh, from like, hey, how, how's it going? Like, how's your weekend to, okay, like, you know, what's your physical design process for circuit boards like when you have like a supply chain disruption you know um but it's yeah i'll give you some more advice on that first i'm just gonna talk about like what some of the common issues are so some of the common issues with user interviews is just asking inelegant straightforward questions and like asking leading questions that anchor the user because people want to make you happy um, and they also want to feel like they get it. Um, so if you ask leading questions, what's going to happen is people are just going to get like, you know, um, they're just going to give you the answer you want to hear and you're not going to get the information you need. So what you want to do is in each, in each area that you're interested in, start with unaided open questions. Like what are the biggest problems you face in accomplishing this goal? And then ask aided questions like, hey, we've identified some problems in this area. Can you tell us if they affect you? Um, and then you stack rank the problems you hear in terms of severity, or you have the users stack rank them. And you just repeat the process through all six dimensions. 
But start with target audience. Start with your target audience hypothesis because it's a really good way to build rapport. Just like asking the person about themselves. Like, you know, what do you currently do? And like, how did you get to this point? And what are you most proud of in your work? And what are you up to these days? Like, these are very like natural questions um, to kind of get the conversation started. And you can also ask things like, you know, how, how would you describe yourself as a professional? Because that self-description can be very helpful in finding attributes you haven't considered that are important in the self-definition of your target audience. So as you go through too, like each, each dimension that you're trying to validate has some different aspects that should be considered. So when you're trying to validate the problem to solve, ask about the challenges folks are dealing with with a job to be done. So with Airbnb, like the job to be done is finding travel accommodations. And you want to find a right size job to be done. Like for Airbnb, planning a trip is too broad and finding non-hotel accommodations is too narrow. Really like the, the right size job that people are trying to accomplish is find travel accommodations. And having recently um, booked an Airbnb, I can tell you like we looked at hotels, we looked at Airbnbs. We weren't specifically trying to find non-hotel accommodations and we didn't come to Airbnb to plan the trip. The trip planning happened outside of that. Once folks like share these problems with you, restate them back and ask if you're missing something and then stack rank them. Um, and then if you find that your hypothesis problem, hypothesized problems actually match their real problems, ask for specific instances of this problem occurring and ask them to describe the consequences because keeping things concrete is a really good way to get to how the user actually thinks and behaves as opposed to how they want to think and behave, right? Like if you ask people, Oh, how often do you go to the gym? People will generally give you an inflated number. But if you ask people, when was the last time you went to the gym? Maybe it was two weeks ago, you know, and that already says something. And you can just be like, oh, when was the last time before that? You know, um, so that is going to be very important to just keep things concrete. And if you find the disconnect between what you thought would be their problem and what, what the real problems are, uh, go through and, you know, ask them to share why they think that disconnect exists. Like, why weren't the problems you thought would be interesting interesting to them? Um, when you're validating the value proposition, ask about benefits, not features. And then, you know, ask them to... Um, ask them an unaided question, an aided question, and then stack rank similarly. So here it might be something like, okay, so we've described these problems that you're facing in this area, and you know, here are the top three. Um, what would be the ideal way for this to be solved in your mind? And obviously you're not gonna, just going to take this and build it, but the idea is to ask them like this kind of open-ended question, just see what they say. You know, and then be like, hey, so we've cons we've thought about these benefits. Um, what do you think about these? Like, do you resonate with these? Do you not resonate with these? Um, what's helped you in the past to address this problem? What are you currently doing to address this problem? And then have them stack rank 
the various benefits mentioned either by them or by you. Um, in terms of competitive advantage, the broad question, the un unaided question is like, how do you solve this problem today? And the aided question is, are you familiar with XYZ solution? And have you tried them? And if you haven't tried them, why not? And then you stack rank the current solutions. Then in terms of growth strategy, the key questions are, where do you spend time online and offline? Do you spend time at XYZ, on Twitter, reading TechCrunch, whatever it may be? Uh, and then you stack rank those. And then in terms of the business model, the question is like, who do you think would benefit most from solving this problem? Who makes a decision decision to purchase and how, and do they have the budget? That's in a B2B context. But it can also apply in a B2C context too. Um, and there it's like, a good example is Wealthfront. So the CEO, Andy Johns, like what he found is, or actually no, um, Ratchliff was the CEO. Andy Johns was like just a guy who was working in like product or growth there. The point is what he found is that one spouse is the primary decision maker, but the other spouse has to buy in at a price point of about $5,000 or more. So for that reason, having a minimum investment in Wealthfront of $5,000 creates a lot of friction to like get started with the product. So the final aspect of user interviews that is kind of neglected, and even I neglect this um, sometimes, is to debrief effectively. So you're debriefing in order to rush less um, and slow down, detach, make better use of subsequent interviews and stay present in the next interview. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to be insightful, iterative, and unbiased. You want to pattern match across interviews, uh, consider trends in totality. As such in Reiki, the CEO of Notejoy says, we're not here to solve one problem's one person's problem. We're here to determine whether these problems resonate with a broad customer segment. And if you want to be iterative in that as you finish each interview, you modify the interview script and get more specific and ask like different and better questions. At first, it's like efficient to keep iterating. And then eventually what you're going to start to hear is consistent themes. And once you start to hear that, you know you're approaching diminishing returns and like you've tapped out like the value of the interviews. And the other way is like to know if you've tapped out the value is just fundamentally like have you interviewed three to five people per customer segment. And you wanna be you wanna be as unbiased as you can. So keep confirmation bias in check. Um, take time to ensure that you're interpreting things correctly. And a good way to do this is have two people attend and debrief each interview and debate the results. So after you're done with these interviews, you're going to find some divergence sometimes. And when you do find divergence, you found risk. So the most divergent, um, dimensions of your product strategy are the, are the riskiest ones and also the dimensions where responses were furthest from your initial hypothesis and then what you want to do from there is just continue to update your product market fit narrative with refinements pivots and if necessary resets 
So at this point, like you've done a bunch of interviews, you've done market research, you've you've listened to expert advice, and you've gathered information on what the riskiest dimensions of your product strategy are. You to the point where you're now ready to commit some resources to targeted validation techniques, which are more expensive. So what are these targeted validation techniques? So they are things like surveys, smoke tests, prototypes, pre-sales, growth tests, and product tests, AKA building an MVP. So to choose the right validation technique, you need to consider speed, cost, and applicability. Each targeted validation technique is gonna do a, a better or worse job validating different aspects of your product strategy. So for example, there is nothing as effective at validating your business model than a pre-sale. To ask people to actually put money down right now and commit to buying the product, I mean, that tells you they're willing to pay. Um, similarly, like there is nothing better to test your growth strategy than a growth test, which we're going to go into in more detail in uh, the fourth episode in this series because it's like such a big topic in and of itself. So you got to think about like, what is it that you're trying to do? What dimensions are the riskiest? And based on that, choose like which, um, which technique you want to use. And I'm just going to like run through real quick. So you have, have in your mind, like, um, which ones are good for what? So for the problem you're trying to solve and for your target audience, and your value prop. One of the most effective targeted validation techniques is a smoke test, which is you create a fake landing page and you drive some traffic to it from various segments of interest, maybe using a small Facebook ads budget, and you see who clicks through on the landing page or if anyone does. And this lets you, first of all, gauge like, do people have this problem? Does this target audience resonate with the way you're talking about this problem and like, do people care about your value prop? This is literally a super fast, super easy technique that you can do within a day. And like, the cool thing here too is like, you know, there's a lot of no code tools that let you do this. So you don't even need to know how to code or design. Um, if you do all the better, cause it's like an interesting, useful skill set, but you don't need to know it to get this level of validation. If you're trying to validate your value prop and kind of competitive advantage, and you're trying to validate also like the user experience and like technical feasibility of your product, you can create either a design or technical prototype. So for LinkedIn Sales Navigator, a big question they had is like, would we be able to um, generate good sales lead recommendations? Because that was something that users were very skeptical about. Like they wanted that problem solved, but they didn't believe that you, that LinkedIn Sales Navigator could solve it. So they built a technical prototype of their recommendation engine to kind of like prove that out. And for the um, for the ultimate validation of your product, what you really have to do is build an MVP. But the question is before going into that, 
like before testing but basically like if you don't build an mvp you're you're always getting it's getting at what you're trying to get at indirectly when you finally build an mvp what you have is like you know real user behavior in a real bare bones version of the product and nothing is more valuable than that but also nothing is more costly than that so the question you got to ask yourself is through broad validation through this like menu of targeted validation techniques have i adequately de-risked each aspect of my strategy to where i'm willing to commit the labor and money and time to build this mvp knowing that the further i go down that road the more painful and expensive it's going to be to pivot and maybe i won't even be able to because i'll run out of money or you know um i won't will lack the conviction as a nights and weekends uh hobbyist entrepreneur to have the follow through because like i didn't do the groundwork to give myself that confidence uh in what i'm building so i think that's the crux of what i wanted to share with you guys today there's there's obviously a lot more to this topic but honestly this is an area which like is super super important and it's an area that i can't say i've been great at historically you know like i've been very much on the mvp side like the first business i tried to start in college similarly like we had a initial insight and we went straight for creating the product and investing in the team and building it out and like it uh there was no burning desire for this product and we could have um, gotten ahead of that if we'd taken our lumps early and said, hey, you know, does anyone care? Um, and validated whether anyone cares in like these host of different ways. Uh, from broad and subjective to targeted and like very, um, you know, very close to the bone. Um, so I hope you, you found value in this. Um, I hope this helps you find a lot of success, build products that are helpful and productive and, and lucrative. Um, and the next episode is going to be on measuring product market fit. How do we know if we've reached it? And then after that, we're going to talk about um, gaining your first users and building initial traction. And along the way, we have a ton of other episodes in the hopper. Um, there's a legendary Harvard professor called Richard Zeckhauser. We're doing a, a book on him. He's like a private equity mastermind, a, a champion bridge player, and a decision scientist. And then we have like a book on culture that's still in the hopper, high output management by the CEO of Intel. Um, so we're covering like various things um, that are going to be awesome. And I hope that you get a ton of value out of it and i hope you have a good halloween weekend